0: James 4, beginning at verse 10. This is God's holy and infallible word. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, do it sins. That's God's word to us in James tonight. Back in James 1, we talked together about how to best make sense of the book of James. And I don't know if you've noticed it in these last weeks, it's kind of tough because there's a lot in it and James seems to like say, change subjects a lot, kind of move from this or that, but, but clearly there's a lot of good stuff here, a lot of really practical stuff, lots of illustrations that help us uh, poor attention span people these days, a lot of wisdom for how to live out our faith. But the end of chapter 1 gives us the three main subjects that James covers in the book. So wherever you are in the book, you can kind of think it, it falls under one of these subjects. Controlling our tongues, keeping our hearts pure, and caring for those in need. Those are the three main subjects that are throughout the book. We're in the part of the book that's about being pure. Another way to put that is, keeping worldliness out of our lives. A person living out the faith wants to keep worldliness out of our lives. We want God's Word to be triumphing over the world in our hearts, right, and in our living. And verse 10 shows that humility is a key as we strive to live the faith. And the verses we were in last week with Pastor Matthew showed us how humility in our relationship with God is to look, right? We're supposed to be humble before our God. And those verses we read last week were about how to have that proper humility before our God. The verses this week show how humility is applied to two different areas of our life, especially humility in how we look at others and humility in how we look to the future. The tendency is to look at others and look down the road to the future with pride or presumption. Which is the opposite of the humility we're called to. The dictionary says presumption is an assumption often not fully established that something is true. It's assuming Trump, something is true. And presumption can get us into trouble As we live our lives, I want to talk about presumptive regeneration first. We had a baptism tonight. What a joy. There's a presumptive way to look at baptism in the church that we need to guard against. And it's called presumptive regeneration. I know this is pretty theological language, but stick with me. Regeneration means spiritual rebirth. Going from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. Presumptive regeneration is a mistaken view of baptism that can creep in, that presumes because a person is baptized, they are saved. We talk about it especially in terms of baptized babies, but the same mistake can be made with adults who are baptized, to presume that baptism saves us. And the problem with this, of course, is that water doesn't save a person. A sacrament doesn't save. Jesus alone saves. So, as a, as a parent, if, if I, I, I presume, I could presume that baptism saves and think, my child is baptized. Great. Everything is set and done. My kid is going to heaven for sure. That presumption could lead to a failure to raise that child in the Lord and teach him or her about Jesus. And it could lead to a failure to emphasize to that child that we need to respond to Jesus. We need to ask him into our hearts, each one of us. The reality is our covenant-baptized children need to be brought to Jesus, taught his word, called upon to give a response to his grace. We don't think, well, we got him baptized, that's all there is. No. It's just the beginning. We work hard to raise our children in the Lord with the help of the church, and we pray even harder for that. There's someone by the name of Dr. Norman Shepard who talked about this idea of presumptive regeneration, and he said the antidote to presumption is the promise of God. God promises to be with us and our children And that's what we depend on and look to in baptism. God's promise, not human presumption. We submit our lives and that of our loved ones to the promises of his word. God's promise is our foundation for raising our covenant children in him. Well, this same idea helps us understand our text tonight. James calls us away from human presumption, And instead, he's calling us to God's promises. First, God's promise, not human presumption with regard to others. I'd say second, really, I guess. But first in our text. God's promise, not human presumption with regard to others. In verses 11 and 12, James says, in effect, don't presume you know the heart of your neighbor. Don't use human presumption there. And he uses this language of slandering, judging a brother, speaking against the law. Why does he say that? How does judging someone go against the law? Well, the law of God is loving others, and it's not loving to judge others, and so it's not keeping the law. We sure do have our opinions about other people, don't we? About how and and so-and-so are raising their kids, about how they're spending their money. And we can presume to know their spiritual state also. Jesus spent a good deal of time talking against behavior like that when he walked on this earth, which must mean it's a particular problem that we got to watch out for. James is calling us to get rid of a spirit of criticism and judgment toward others. James says, Who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? What do you know, Really? To judge someone is is to know, say you know the heart of someone, and that's not something you know. Only God knows someone's heart. John Wesley was a great pastor, and he was also a musician and hymn writer in the church. And he once shared about a man he had really little respect for because he considered this guy to be stingy and greedy with his money. One day, this person contributed only a very small gift to a worthy cause. And then Wesley had sort of had enough. He openly criticized the guy. After this little incident, the man went to John Wesley privately and told him that he had been living on crackers and water for several weeks. And he explained that before he became a Christian, before he was converted, he had run up so many bills And he said, now by skimping on everything and buying nothing for myself, I'm paying off my creditors one by one. And he said, Christ has made me an honest man. And so with all these debts to pay, I can only give a little bit above and beyond my tithe. I've got to settle up with my worldly neighbors and show them what the grace of God can do in the heart of a man who was once so dishonest. Well, Wesley apologized to that man and he asked for his forgiveness we got to be so careful here, friends. we got to show a lot of grace to others. Don't presume. And we're talking about this. Please don't take this to mean that we don't say anything if someone is off track or in sin in life, that we just leave them be there. Not judging doesn't mean being okay with wrongdoing. Sometimes we might notice a certain behavior. Maybe there's a lack of church attendance or some other issue in someone's life. And it's our Christian call to lovingly go up to that person and check in. Hey, what's going on? Is everything okay? It seems like you need a little help. You need to get things on track here. What can I do to help? What James is talking about is different from that. It's questioning someone's faith and heart and motives. We can't do that. We don't know the heart. I want to read to you a a poem about this. It's called The Cookie Thief. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop, bought a bag of cookies, and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She read, munched cookies, and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking, if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, This guy has some nerve, and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought her book, which is almost complete. As she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. Instead of presumption, people of God, we depend on God and his promises. God promises to take care of sin and evil in people and the problems in this world, Verse 12 hints at the end of time when it talks about God being the judge who is able to save and destroy. And the end of Romans 12 gets at that similar theme. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, God will take care of these things. It's not for us to worry about or think about. Keeping track of our own hearts should keep us busy enough, don't you think? I know it's true of me. If we're doing that and if we're depending on God's promises... We're not going to have the time of day to judge others and waste time thinking about them and their hearts. Leave the judging to God. Then there's one more thought here in this last little section. It's about God's promise, not human presumption in regard to the future. Verses 13 to 17, James tells us not to presume to have the future all figured out either. And those verses are so beautiful and clear they hardly need any explanation. They speak for themselves. What what James is saying is when we make plans for the future, we're called to always have the attitude, I will do such and such. I will go wherever if it is the Lord's will. James talks about how quickly our life passes and how we don't know what tomorrow will bring. The Bible is not against good planning for the future here, but the Bible is against planning for the future apart from the Lord. How many of you here know what the initials DV mean in relation to this text? Raise your hand. DV. Deo Volente. That's Latin for the Lord Willing. And in years past, Christians would say this a whole lot more than they do today. You'd see it with the little comma at the end of sentences in, in Christian writing. It's very appropriate. We could do it more, we could say it more today, but it's especially the mindset and attitude that we need. John Calvin says that about this, Jesus, Paul. And the other apostles, as we read the Bible, they didn't always verbalize the Lord willing every single time they talked about the future. He says that saying it is not as important as this. They had this as a principle fixed in their minds that they would do nothing without the permission of God. Do we have this principle Fixed in our minds, the Lord willing. And maybe we, we should speak it out a whole lot more than we do, just to make sure we and others know how we live. It's different from the world. We don't presume the length of our life, our health, that in 10 years we're going to upgrade our house, our car. We submit all our well-made plans to the Lord. And seek His will. If it's God's will, we're going to have children someday. The Lord willing, I'm going to be able to buy a house someday. Sarah will reach that 50th anniversary, honey, someday, if it's the Lord's will. The alternative to acting with presumption as we look at the future is depending on God's promise. And God's promise is that He is lovingly in control. He's sovereign. The future is in His hands. And here we can cling to the biblical idea of providence. I'd recommend maybe if you have a quiet time tonight to look up Lord's Day 10. If you don't have a copy of the catechism, you can go Google it and find it. Lord's Day 10. What do you understand by the providence of God? and Meditate on that. Let's reject human presumption when it creeps up in our lives. And let's choose God's promise. We can bank on God's promises for little Austin. Because God is faithful. We bank on his promise. Even as parents and congregation, we work and pray to keep those vows. We can bank on God's promise that as judge he will take care of things. There are certain things that we don't have to worry about. God is going to deal with right and wrong in his way and his time. We can also bank on God's promise for the future. We put our lives, our future in his care, recognizing that we have no idea what tomorrow brings. We don't even know if we're going to be here tomorrow. But we can know and we can be assured that God holds tomorrow, and he holds our lives in his hand. All of the promises of God's word are the perfect antidote to our human tendency of presumption.